It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the second episode of the All Sport 70 podcast. All Sport is 70 years old and we've taken on the challenge of picking out some of the greatest cars from various categories in motorsport history. Uh, we've already done Grand Prix cars and now we're taking on the challenge of sports cars. Um, I am your host, Chief Editor of All Sport, Kevin Turner, and joining me are two sports car gurus. The first is Gary Watkins, who I think will be attending his 30th Le Mans 24 Hours uh, next month uh, all being well if uh, everything goes according to plan yes um, yes yeah, so, <laughs> um, still a bit of a question mark isn't it gary indeed yeah well i'm hopeful uh that i'll be there you know everything is suggest it's everything is suggesting i'll be there uh and the race will be going on obviously in these uncertain times you never know what's going to happen but fingers crossed yeah, absolutely. And how, how many 24-hour races have you covered now? I reckon, it, I reckon talking, talking to you, you were heading towards 50 a few years ago. So 50? Yes, I'm, I'm, I think I'm around 75. So, yeah, it was uh, a few years ago we had the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, which is far too many, I think. But uh, there you go. And my second guest uh, is our British GT correspondent. He's also um, big sports car, big sports car man, uh, All Sport Plus editor, James Newbold. So uh, how are you doing, James? Good, thank you, Kev. To uh, honour this 70th anniversary of Autosport, talking about sports cars podcast, I've, uh, I've brought a Brumos Porsche T-shirt to the occasion, which our listeners, of course, won't be able to appreciate. Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was my souvenir when I went to the Long Beach Grand Prix last year. And I thought, I, I have to come away from this event with a souvenir of sorts. And it was... Uh, the most tasteful, I believe, of the T-shirts on offer, shall we say. Excellent. Well, I can glance to my left and I've got um, a small stash of 143rd scale sports car models, 
of which I believe three are on the list of cars that we're going to talk about today. So I think that's the reasonable strike rate. I so, can tell you I'm not wearing Rothman's 9 Porsche 956 <laughs> underpants. Not, not, not today anyway. Exclusive for our listeners there, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, the basic criteria is the same with all of these, uh, all of these debates. It will be how successful the car was, um, how much it changed the game, and then the sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, which is a fever rating. It's basically how much we like the car. So um, it's the heart-over-head type argument. So um, we're going to actually, although Autosport started in 1950, we are going to cover cars that competed before that, which means there are a few um, candidates we could talk about from the pre-war era of sports car racing. Um, Bentley Speed 6 would be one. Um, but the car that we've gone for is the Alfa Romeo 8C 2300, the 2.3 straight eight supercharged car that won Le Mans four times in the early 30s, took, took over from the Bentley, really. Um, so, Gary, this is kind of one of the first, like almost the, uh, 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 the first supercar, almost, you could say. Well, isn't it the definition of a prototype? It was a racing car, a single-seater as well, because it was a Grand Prix winner. Uh, it wins Le Mans four times and spawns... Um, a road car. I mean, it, it, it's almost, yeah, it is a prototype in the truest sense of the word. Obviously, a prototype today is, of course, nothing of the sort, is it? But it, 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 it is, it goes back to the original meaning of the word, that it, it was a road car that was developed in competition. Um, yeah, which, uh, which is great, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of the it's the, that time when when endurance racing was doing exactly what it was created for, yeah. which was to sort of improve the breed, really mm-hmm. uh, directly. I mean, it still does that, but in perhaps a perhaps more indirect way. Um, right. So just to go over some of the other um, successes, it won the uh, the Milia Milia, the thousand thousand mile race around Italy twice. Uh, it also won the Targa Florio three times. So very, it was the car. Um, really in the in the early 30s and it kind of also spawned a number of other cars as, as Gary said my personal favorite is the 2.9 litre coupe that should have won one in 1938 which I just think even now looks like it's from outer space absolutely fantastic yes piece. absolutely um, so um, yeah a bit of a personal favorite there I think maybe working against it <clears throat> is uh, it probably wasn't the best car of its day I mean if you talk to sort of some of the experts for the time look at some of the Copy at the time, the Talbot 105s, which were unblown, very well engineered, um, but they obviously weren't supercharged. They were never going to really beat the, beat the Alfa Romeos. And I'm not sure whether you could really say that the 8C changed the game particularly. I don't know how far you would say that really, that really happened. Um, so I'd say it's probably the, the pick of the pre-war cars, but unless anyone has any objections, I think perhaps we, we leave it at that point and move on to some of the... Uh, some of the iconic cars in the immediate post-war era. Any objections to that, chaps? No. No. <laughs> That's my contribution to that, Kev. We're actually going to discuss two cars, I think, together now, um, because we've got uh, an iconic Le Mans car, which is the Jaguar D-Type, and what I would argue is a greater sports car, which is the Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR. So what do you reckon, Gary? This, we're into the area here, I suppose, of comparing Le Mans versus sports car greatness, aren't we? Well, obviously, of course, the Merc didn't win Le Mans, and obviously it might have done, but of course, but for the uh, tragedy of 1955. Uh, I mean, we shouldn't really count that against us. I mean, the Merc, the 300 SLR is an iconic car, and it's... And 
it's almost because of Dennis Jenkinson and Sterling Moss. But Dennis Jenkinson wrote the story about uh, the 1955 Millimilia Triumph, which for me is one of the great pieces, not just of motorsport journalism, but sports journalism. I think it should be up there with Norman Mailer, The Fight, uh, Touching the Void, uh, you know, some of those great works of I was there journalism. Okay, it wasn't a book. It was quite long. But um, yeah, it's just one of, the, one of the most amazing stories of, you know, Jenks sitting there in the passenger seat navigating with his toilet roll in a metal case. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's breathtaking. Yeah, I was reading that very account earlier today, Gary. It also appears in a book that Christopher Hilton did with Moss called Motor Racing Masterpieces. Curious that, uh, that Moss should choose that one, praising himself, but there we go. Uh, I, I do agree with you, Gary, that it's, it is a, it's a mesmerising account and um, Jenks identifying corners in three particular grades labelled saucy ones, dodgy ones, and very dangerous ones. Uh, I particularly like that. And uh, his description of one incident where Moss is about to plunge off a ravine, where Jenks is so busy watching how Moss is coping with the situation that he says he forgot to be scared. But as much as the, the story, the account he tells is, is largely about Moss, I think the, the brilliance of the car does shine through. It was only introduced for the 1955 season. It missed the first two races of the 1955 World Sports Car Championship in Buenos Aires and Sebring. But it won um, three of the four remaining races. And as Gary said, it probably would have won Le Mans um, had, it not been the, had it not been for the tragic accident of, of Pierre Levesque that, that caused the death of 82 spectators. Um, of course, and of the, course, it was a car that was cut down in its prime, you know, if we were having this discuss discussion and there was no uh, 1955 Le Mans disaster, we'd probably be talking about it as a two or three time winner, you know, lots of other wins in big races. And, and you know, yeah, that's, that's the tragedy of that car. And I'm sure, you know, but, but for Mercedes withdrawal, it would have won a, a hell of a lot more. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to Sterling about that car and he was absolutely adamant that it would have won him on that year. I mean, if you think famously, Fangio, his co-driver, was having a fight with Mike Hawthorne in the D-type and then Moss was going to go up against Ivor Boob in the D-type and, you know, you'd put Moss... Yeah, Moss was going to be quicker all, you know, every day of the absolutely. year. Really. Um, and and he said, you know, it never one of those cars never broke under him. And he had a good go at dinging it at the Targa Florio as well. And Media Media had a few yes. moments as well. Yeah, yeah. It was a very strong car. Um, it won, as well as those um, three championship races that, uh, that James mentioned. It also won um, the Swedish Grand Prix, which is the sports car race, and the Eiffel Renan. Um, so it was, it was only that one race it didn't win. And I think they were two or three laps clear by the time Mercedes actually got round to withdrawing the cars from the race, which, which, which Sterling was still pretty unhappy about. Uh, when I spoke to him about it uh, a few years ago. So um, I think if you look at the D-types record, it's three Le Mans wins. It's one of the great... If it was a Le Mans debate, we would put the Jaguar through, definitely. Um, yeah, its result in 57 was almost what Porsche did in later decades. Um, but it's only other wins. It won at Reims in 54 and 56, non-championship races. But that's basically a flat-out flat blast, the same way as Le Mans was. The only other championship win was Sebring. 
So and that was a bit I, of a confusing result, wasn't it? They, uh, the Ferrari team thought that it was ahead um, because there were some confusing announcements over the PA system. Uh, and Ferrari had also got its lap charts wrong somehow. Uh, so it believed that it was miles ahead and basically didn't order the drivers to push. Uh, and Mike Hawthorne and Phil Walters, who had led the race until they had a bit of an issue, um, were, were able to catch it and, and win by only about 20 seconds in the end. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting reading. Uh, it was a really interesting book by Cyril Posthumus called The World Sports Car Championship, uh, an imaginative title. And it has these brilliant accounts of all these um, world well, races from the championship in the in the fifties up until nineteen sixty one. Uh, if you can ever pick up a copy from a second hand book retailer, as I managed to fortunately in Plymouth earlier this year, then I definitely recommend it. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I think the uh, there's sort of a little bit of fortune there. I mean, if you look at the sports car championship in the fifties, it was really a Ferrari benefit most of the time, uh, except when Mercedes rocked up and 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 blew Ferrari into the weeds, really. Um, so uh, I think the Jaguar fans might even suggest that the C-Type would be a better candidate for this. The innovator, wasn't it? That was the car of innovation and the D-Type built on its, built on the foundations of the C-Type. Absolutely. Obviously, the first car to win Le Mans with disc brakes, first, uh, first car to win a major race of disc brakes at Reims the year before with, with Sterling driving. Um, really moved things on performance-wise quite significantly after the war. And as you say, Gary, led to the to the D-type. But it's just not quite as sexy, is it? I mean, if we're talking about fever rating, the long-nose, finned D-type has got to be one of the best-looking uh, Le Mans cars, I would say. It is, I, it, there's something iconic about it. It's almost, for someone of my generation, someone old, older than your, yourselves, it's sort of, it's there along, the spitfire, along with the Spitfire. And when I say the Spitfire, I mean... Uh, the the fighter plane and not the uh, Triumph yes. sports car. It's sort of it's of it's of an era. Uh, there's something very British about it, isn't there? Um, yeah, it's 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 hard. It's not very tangible, but it's it's of, of, of that of it's of its time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think. Um, I mean, if I was going to pick a fifty sports car that I would want to own, it'd actually be an Aston Martin DBR one. Uh, which hasn't come into hasn't come into this debate. I think probably took a bit too long, perhaps, to win, and always had the had the gearbox that that was its Achilles' heel. So, from these two, then from the fifties, are we are we all in agreement that it's actually the three hundred SLR that we're going to put through to the to the final debate? If you're happy to upset uh, a lot of uh, our listeners and readers, uh, yes. <laughs> well, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Jaguar fan. As I say, if we were doing a Le Mans debate, which we should do for the 100th anniversary of the race and then this conversation will probably go a bit differently but I think if we're talking about great sports cars I think the Mercedes would have won at Le Mans and the different tracks that it was successful on from the Nürburgring to the Targa uh, to Dondrod of course um, yes. another punishing punishing event um, you know Mike Hawthorne produced one of the greatest drives of his career at Dundrod in, in 1955 but Moss had him covered and he was battling uh, Fangio for second when the when the car broke. So um, yes, I think the 300 SLR, perhaps slightly surprisingly, uh, is the car that we'll put through. It's uh, a bad car, isn't it? I mean, you can look at the tangible numbers over time, but as we all know, you know, accumulated accumulated numbers doesn't always necessarily mean that that car was better. Um, and yeah, I think 
you mentioned Dundrod there, Kev. I mean, that was a race where the car actually let Moss down. He had a puncture. Uh, he brought the car back to the pits uh, and he still was able to beat, beat Hawthorne. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm completely happy with the 300 SLR going through there from, for representing the 1950s. And just as a, as a postscript, the other amazing thing about Jenks's tale is that he hand wrote it after the race and his means of getting it back to the UK, to London, was to put it in a, you know, he sent it by post which just in this day and age just, you know, sounds, sounds remarkable, but it was the only copy. And you're thinking you're send, sending a letter from somewhere in Italy, wherever, wherever he ended up writing it to London. And it, and it made it fortunately, because otherwise that uh, great piece of writing would have been lost. I wouldn't have put it past Jenks though, because it must've been, burned into his brain must need sharing that kind of experience with Moss over 10 hours that had that happened someone would have probably got him on the phone and I bet he could have done a very good job of, Possibly, of doing one yeah. over the phone as well but yeah absolutely it seems amazing in this day and age doesn't it so we'll, we'll move on to the, the next goal we're going to skip a few years here um, and in particular the Ferrari 250 Testarossa largely on the basis that I don't think it really had quite enough opposition uh, there were times in the early 60s where Ferrari really had things their own way um, obviously, lost to Aston Martin in 1959, but otherwise it was it was all their own, uh, in you know, inter-team fighting really. Until Ford decided to get serious, and obviously it's a very uh, much repeated story about why Ford got involved in in, in Le Mans. But the the GT project, um, and for the purposes of this, we're going to cover all the all the cars, the the, the original Mark One, the, the Mark Two, and the Mark Four. Even though I know that. Certain people argue that some of those shouldn't be regarded as GT40s, but we're going to say that it's four Le Mans wins for the GT40. So, uh, James, I mean, this is, uh, you were talking about Brumos livery. A golf livery GT40 has got to be one of the most uh, legendary uh, images in sports car racing. It is. I guess one of the amazing things about last year's Le Mans um, was obviously Ford was in the last year of its four year project. Uh, and it introduced these retro liveries. It was just fantastic to see them brought back into a contemporary um, setting. I mean, the, the cars, anyone who's watched uh, Le Mans 66, okay, there's some Hollywoodisms there that you might think, hmm, that quite doesn't quite stack up. Um, but just a fantastically evocative car, and one that after its early troubles, obviously it was... Uh, well and truly trounced by Ferrari in its first iterations, um, did go on to become a, a pretty pretty dominant car, winning four Le Mans. Uh, and it also won Sebring three times, and it won Daytona in 1966 as well. Um, a fair bit of controversy around its first Le Mans win in 66, obviously. Um, but I don't think that detracts from the fact that it was a, a highly successful car um, that did prove to get the better of Ferrari. I think the thing about uh, the GT40 in its all, all its iterations, it's, it's the narrative, isn't it? It's the, you know, that Hollywood picked up on finally belatedly, but it's, it's that, you know, corporate America taking on Ferrari. And that's, and that's, and that's what, that's what makes it such a compelling car and why, why we talk about it you know, 50, 50, 50 years on. Should we hold uh, something against it 
on in the terms of it took a while to win. Obviously, they came out with the with the first kind of sixty four that broke. They decided just before Le Mans in sixty five that a big NASCAR seven liter engine would be a good idea. That was very fast. That broke, and they had to basically throw the kitchen sink and everything else at it for sixty six to to beat Ferrari. I mean, it was a sledgehammer to crack a nut really in sixty six and sixty seven. Do we hold that against the car, or is that perhaps a bit unfair, Gary? Um. Well, you know, manufacturers don't get it right first time, do they? You know, um, there's, I'm going to, you know, if we, we're, we're going to be talking about the Porsche 919 hybrid later, you know, they came with one car and they basically redesigned it for year two. It, it, it was, you know, it was a redesign. It wasn't the same monocoque, you know, why should manufacturers get it right first time? We're going to be talking about some Audis, uh, later on you know Audi didn't get it right first time with the uh, R8R and the R8C uh, I don't think we can necessarily uh, hold it against Ford and, and of course um, I suppose James you could also argue that that the original design can't have been too bad given that five years after it okay so I was quite substantially modified and breathed on by JW Automotive but to still be capable of winning endurance races he won the world sports car champion in 68 and then of course Le Mans in 1969 it did yeah and of course the 1969 race obviously people tend to talk about 66 the most as it has that it has that controversy around Ken Miles being ordered to back off and losing the race by um, virtue of a jumped up rule that said because Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon had started further back ergo then I'm going corre- to correct you on that actually James because McLaren actually finished ahead and the photos show that but even if McLaren had finished behind he still would have won because of the 60 metres uh, differential but uh, Mc- you know there is photographic evidence that McLaren finished ahead of uh, Miles well there we go uh, Stand corrected, but I, I was going to say, um, you know, we, we talk about that 66 race so much that often it gets forgotten how close the finish was in 1969 um, between the, the car shared by Jackie X and Jackie Oliver uh, and the 908 Porsche of Hans Hermann and Gerard LaRousse. Um, yes, okay, if you're saying a, a truly great sports car should be able to wipe the floor with everything. Um, and you know, really move the game on, then that's one thing. But it was still capable of beating the best that Porsche had to offer at that time. Um, yeah, many years of course, after. And of course, the finish. You know, one of the classic finishes. And what we should never forget is that it was sort of a finish twice over because it was all about slipstreaming. And Jackie X forted won it because he, he got to the finish line. Came, you know, came through Maison Blanche ahead. Got to the finish line there were still a few seconds on the clock. So he had to do it all again. And he, he knew that to win the race, he had to be behind through Turt Rouge onto the Molsan straight because that allowed him to slipstream ahead. If he got to Molsan corner ahead, he could keep ahead all the way to the finish. So his strategy had uh, sort of become unstitched. And so desperate was he to to finish to sorry to get to Turt Rouge behind and he wasn't he came out of Turt Rouge and slowed now Herman knew what he was up to and slowed as well and so eventually it slowed even more and put his indicators on at which point Herman thought while well, he's running out of fuel he's got a problem and went past and then uh, X took off 
after him, slipstreamed him, got to Mulsanne Corner first, you know, four kilometres later, wins the race, which is, a, which is slightly cheeky, actually. And I don't know uh, how we would interpret that today if it, if it would sort of be seen as sort of unsportsmanlike. But, uh, yeah, and so that is, that is it. You know, its first win had a controversial finish. The last win for the GT40 had a great finish that was, I think, if, if, we, if, if it had happened today, would have been regarded as very controversial. It's like a cycle race, isn't it, almost? Well, uh, yes, like a, a pursuit yeah. race, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, one of those sprints on a velodrome, isn't it? I, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, 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 my feeling is that that 69 win is more about the drive than the car, although obviously it had to get to the finish. Um, but I think it, you, you back Ix over Herman every day of the week, really. Um, but having said that, I, I think, for me, the GT40 has got to go through to the final, hasn't it? Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're... I think we're uh, uh, we're going to put that through, and I, I'm going to suggest that the next car on this list is an automatic through to the. To, well, to the I think yeah. so. But, um, but look, we're going to talk about the 917. Okay, let's let's cut straight to the point. A great racing car. It's got its place in history. Perhaps, argue, you know, not arguably, it is the most famous sports car, and the most identifiable sports racing car. Is that partly because it, it's it's been put in the public eye by Steve McQueen and Le Mans, the film. Is it, do you think? I think that's got to be a factor, hasn't it? That it's, that it's uh, you know, it's, it's appeared in a major, in a major film. Um, for me, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the cars, you know, Gary, and I don't think the film itself was the reason behind that. You know, I was, I, my, my youth was a bit odd in that I'd spent it reading old autosports, not just current ones. And I, my dad happened to have 1970 and 71 reports uh, and I, and I, read, I, I read them and saw the pictures and thought that car sounded incredible. And I think it's one of those cars, the more you, you read and find out about it, the more incredible it becomes, really, the, the, the different things. I mean, game changer. I mean, even if you just look at a picture of the difference between a 69 car and a 71 car, uh, you can see the changing aerodynamics of the time. Obviously, they, they did a lot of work on exotic materials, drill brake discs, when it finally got outlawed in World Sports Car Championship, they took it to Can-Am, uh, pioneered turbocharging on road courses, um, you know, iconic drivers. Which livery do you like? Do you like the Martini one, the Golf one, or the Penske Sunoco? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling to see a chink in its, a chink in its armour, really. And the story of the car, it's about, it was the car no one wanted to drive, apart from Vic Elford. The car people, drivers, perceived to be dangerous. Uh, and it was tamed, isn't it? It's the sort of the taming of the beast is is part, very much part of that narrative, I think, of the car. And that's yeah, and that's it's it's a great story. Absolutely, and and, and James, obviously, it's a car that uh, I, I always think if you've if you've got a car that moves things on so much or is so competitive that rules need to be changed, that's got to be a fairly a fairly good sign. And in the 917's case, of course, that basically happened twice, once with the World Sports Car Championship and then again in Canada, where um, it was it was effectively outlawed, even though it wasn't sort of banned as such. Do you think that that's got to count in its favour as well? I do, yes. And, and frankly, when you asked me to come on this podcast, Kev, I, I basically, my first thought was, well, what are we going to put forward that can dislodge from Kevin Turner's mind 
that something other than the 917 is the greatest show <laughs> ever. Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, it was so good that it had to be written out of the regulations. And it was so good that people were still trying to copy it years later. And this isn't something that I knew about until quite recently when I was reviewing um, a book on the history of the Kramer Porsche team. But in 1981, this is 11 years after it had first won the Le Mans 24 hours, Kramer built up its own 917 chassis around a, a, a tube frame that it had basically built from, from factory drawings when there was this element of uncertainty over the future direction of sports car racing. Now, it wasn't particularly competitive, but the fact that Kramer thought, well, we can't do anything, we can't come up with anything better now, 11 years after the 917 had first won Le Mans, I think to me is a, a major sign that it had enduring uh, appeal and, um, as you say, a testament to just how much it had moved things on. I was lucky yeah. enough to see that car race at the 1981 Brands Hatch 1,000 kilometres. And I'm going to say that uh, it actually led, I think, Bob Wallach and Henri Pescarolo drove it and uh, it had a steering arm failure, I believe. And you wrote a piece on it, didn't you, for our 917 I, special last year? I did, yes. Gary. And it is, yeah, it's just a great tale. It's, it's, it's so Kramer to, to do that, actually. Is it, you know, they, they were just sort of, you know, they had a bit of, they wheeled and dealed and they ended up with a lot of 917 uh, spares and they thought, hey, why not, we, why not make a car? And of course, you know, that was the dying days of Group, group 6. Uh, and, and I guess they thought, well, why, why not? <laughs> And am I right in saying that that, that, that 917, uh, the 917s and I guess the 512 that it was up against the Ferrari sort of helped set the template when they came to look at the Group C regs in terms of shape, aero, screen, aero uh, windscreen shape and that sort of thing? Well, I'm told that when um, um, they were writing the Group C regulations and they were sort of looking at some of the dimensions, I, I'm told that Jürgen Barthes, who was sort of... Uh, Porsche's sort of customer sport racing boss, but also part of the sort of rulemaking process, you know, sidled off to the, um, to the Porsche Museum, got a tape measure out and took some uh, measurements, certainly of the uh, 917's windscreen, definitely. Uh, and yeah, there was, yeah, certainly they did. There was some measurements taken of that car that ended up in the Group C rule book. Which brings us rather nicely on to our next candidate, uh, which I suppose is probably, looking down the list, the one with the best argument to, to go up against. Should we the, put it in straight away? The and the people who are listening Porsche. talking about the Porsche 956, 962. Yeah, let's put it in. We, do we need to talk about it? Should we put that straight to the final so that we yes. can have a good old but argument we, about it at the end? But we should. Is that what you're suggesting, yeah. Gary? Well, do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about it now, or should we talk about it at the end? Because you know, it's it 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 scores for me on wins. You know, all those Le Mans wins, seven Le Mans wins, five wins at Daytona, four Sebring's, uh, five World Championships, and and it it's longevity. You know. 1982 wins on its debut at Le Mans. The Dower car, a GT car, in uh, 1994 wins. But let's not forget that the last time a 962 in in the sort of Kramer K8 open top spec raced at Le Mans was in 1998. You know, 
So we're talking 16 years after the car made its debut. You know, more than 200 cars were built, not all by the factory, which is my next point, is that it spawned an industry. Did the nine, well, really the 962. You know, there are all these sort of special builders doing their own own thing, doing their own tubs, you know, body work. And it was so important in keeping sports car racing alive. You know, look at any IMSA grid or any Group C grid or an in, inter-series grid or whatever in the, in the middle, late 80s. And the 962 or perhaps the 956s as well is the backbone of the grid. It was, and it was a car that Porsche sold. And Porsche was willing to sell you a car that, you know, if the wind was in the right direction and you, were, you did a particularly good job that day, you could beat the factory, as Yerst did, of course, at Le Mans. They, in 84, the, uh, the factory wasn't there, but in 85, it was, and they beat the factory. You know, you think Richard Lloyd's uh, uh, GTI engineering team beat the factory. Brun beat the factory on occasions. You know, we were talking in our recent uh, Thierry Bootsen podcast about uh, the Spa 1000 kilometers in uh, 86. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it scores on so many, many points that, uh, yeah, that it, it goes straight through. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. But I'm going to bring James in now on the next candidate because he's, I know he's a bit of a Sauber fan. Uh, and I, I have to say, in Group C terms, so am I. So we had quite a big debate beforehand about the C9 versus the C11. So the C9 won Le Mans, the C11 didn't. My view is that the C11 is the ultimate turbo car in the Group C era. The I ultimate fuel, for, fuel formula car, I would, I would say, more correctly. Uh, I think it's gone. I think it looks a bit cooler and edgier than the C9, uh, although the C9 looked mega in Kuros livery before it started winning. Um, so what do you reckon, James? Are you, are you happy that the C11 is the one that we've got in this debate? I think if you're going to pick a car that goes up against the 956 and 962, then yes, it, it does have to be the, the C11. Um, but then I would immediately say that if, if we're going for a, a car that's going up against the 917 from the Group C era, then it would have to be the 956-962 rather than the C11 because, yes, you know, in the one season that it does the World Sports Car Championship in 1990, it wins every race but one, which is at Silverstone where it has... Uh, That's not quite right because obviously this, they use the C9 at the opening race in Japan. Yes, yeah, where they use the C11. Um the C11 wins seven out of the eight races that it starts in, in 1990. And the only race it doesn't win. Hang on. Now the C9 won the opening race. They use the C9, I think, at the opening race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was the, the, of the races that the C11 did. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the only, race it, the only race the C11 didn't win that it started was, was at Silverstone in, in 1990, where um, Baldi and Schlesser... Uh, are the only car that actually takes the start after um, the car shared by Jochen Mass and a, a, a little-known German Formula 3 driver called Michael Schumacher is, is disqualified before the race even starts. Um, so it, it utterly dominates the season and, and Jaguar is kind of blown a bit into the weeds, but 
Uh, Mercedes doesn't enter Le Mans and it probably regrets not doing so um, because it ends up being a bit of a race of attrition involving Nissan and, and Jaguar that um, the winning Jaguar is hobbled by gearbox problems and kind of limps to the end with Martin Brundle being transferred over. Um, when it does do Le Mans in 1991, it dominates the race and, and should win, but then it has the, uh, uh, an, over, an overheated engine that rules the car out and allows um, Mazda through for a, an unlikely victory. So, yes, it does have the, the record of, of winning the, the last Turbo Fuel Limited era Group C title, but if we're talking about um, you know, the overall impact is for the reasons that Gary has outlined, you know, there weren't customer Mercedes that were running. It was just the factory that entered them. So that meant beyond um, the, the appearance in 1991 at Le Mans, there were no more C11s in competition. Um, Interesting point that it didn't win Le Mans. Do you know why it didn't win Le Mans in 1991? I was just about to ask you that question, Gary, because this- the 300 SLR doesn't win for reasons other than the car. But the C11 does have a failure, doesn't it? Yeah, and basically that engine, the the the, the four valve engine that they uh, introduced in '89. Uh, you know, so he'd won Le Mans already. It was winning races and it seemed unburstable. When you listen to it, it sounded unburstable. It had a, an amazing noise. It was, it was like a, I don't know how to describe it. It was a sort of a rumble, a deep, deep rumble. Uh, but the reason it broke was that, they, that the alternator bracket, someone had decided that to make it look pretty, they would anodize it. And anodizing it obviously put some stresses or whatever into it and the alternator broke or alternator bracket broke and that's why they didn't win and that is just like you just you can't legislate for that kind of thing i guess uh but it's just yeah so maybe had it of one le mans we would be uh we we might look at it uh, differently but i don't think it was uh it didn't define a generation which um, the 956, 962 did. Um, so I'd say the same thing kind of counts against the next car on our list, which I know will uh, will make Kev a little bit upset, and I can see him drawing a sharp intake of breath. But the next car on our list, obviously, it only races for for one season. Although in different iterations, um, with a Porsche engine in the back, it goes on to win two Le Mans in 1996 and 97. The Jaguar XJR 14. It's a great car, but the same problem that we come up against with the C11, it's not an era-defining car, is it? I think it is for the three-and-a-half-litre Atmo thing. I think it's more defining than the 905 Peugeot. I'd agree with you that, because it it was the car that moved the goalposts. Peugeot basically saw it and thought, "Uh uh-oh, and, you know, (laughs) they had to basically go away and copy it. They copied its rear wing, they copied the sort of front wing set up a bit you know so so yeah I don't, it moved the goalpost so much and I'm lucky enough to have reported on that car uh, racing and watched it uh, and it was brilliant and you talk to any of the guys who drove it I think Derek Warwick Martin Brundle and they and uh, David Brabham all put it up there if not among their f- favorite racing cars that they've driven 
as their favorite racing car. And it was just, it was just amazing. There's an, uh, the, the best story I've ever heard about that car is it's shakedown on the uh, South circuit at, at, um, at Silverstone, which there was, to my knowledge, there was never any race racing uh, on that layout back when Silverstone was remodeled in the early nineties. Basically Derek Warwick gets in the car. He was signed as the sort of number one does an installation that comes in, says it's okay, goes round. He's coming round the first corner, which was where these sort of ad hoc pits were. And all of a sudden he's just like on it flat and the whole team, everyone either ducked or ran for cover, but he just went through the corner flat and it was just nailed. And, And that's just how good it was. It just had so much downforce. In fact, um, uh, John Piper, who designed the car, basically called it a fat F1 car. And that's what it was. You know, it was just, it was, it was clever in so many ways. I think one of, one of the most amazing things is that they, uh, the rules had, had allowed a, a twin plane rear wing. So rather than having two uh, planes high up, they moved one down, which basically increased the length of the diffuser sucked air out of the diffuser so it just had so much downforce i mean ross braun once told me that it had it had like a shed load more downforce than a formula one car of the time and it wasn't you know it was significantly heavier but you know we were we're talking it was that you know those group c cars were only 750 kilos so we're told a formula one car uh, at that time would have been up towards 600 kilos so uh yeah, or, or certainly in the mid mid five hundred kilos, so it wasn't uh, so much heavier, and you know it could do times that uh, would qualify on a Formula One grid. Yeah, some venues it was it was sort of mid grid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, there's a great um, in the the 1991 British Grand Prix commentary. There's a brilliant moment where uh, Mance was disappearing down the road in the Williams FW14. And Murray Walker announces that uh, this 130 point something or other is a new lap record at this new circuit. And James Hunt goes in, we might want to wait a little bit longer because the Jaguars were doing something like that when they were here a couple of months ago. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) They were fantastic. I mean, I was at Silverstone in 91 when uh, when the XGR14s were there and they were three or four seconds a lap faster at that stage of the season. Didn't have the development. And you mentioned downforce levels, Gary. Also, they did struggle a little bit to balance it at the front because it had so much rear downforce that sometimes they had front, uh, you know, they had understeer issues. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, speaking to Derek Warwick about it, he reckons that with development, because obviously it didn't have as big a budget as Peugeot had uh, and with the right tyres, he could have yeah, seen the you know, Michelin was spending a lot Fantastic, and throwing yeah. the kitchen kitchen sink in it. And that was, I think, if, if you had to look why Peugeot got got the upper hand over Jaguar in the second half of the season, I would say it was down, purely down to engine power and tyre development. Absolutely. And, and, and Derek believed that the car with decent development and proper tyres could have could probably still beaten the Peugeots in 92. Obviously, he won the championship with Peugeot in 92, so he's in a pretty good position to uh, to make the call. Of course, um, it did go on and race in IMSA. Davy Jones somehow contrived not to win the IMSA title in 1992 with various moments and let's call it ill fortune, perhaps. Um, I mean, I would love to put this car through. I think it. if you look at a modern sports car, or certainly sports cars for years after, you can see very much the influence uh, that's the jumping off point. I guess my question is, 
with effectively three sports car world sports car championship wins does it qualify on the on the uh, enough wins or do we bring in the fact that it was then well, the one le mans twice you know and not not was it just the basis of the le mans uh, winner with yes, the Yers Porsche WSC 95 in 96. It was that car. It was one of the Jaguars that raced in 1991, chassis seven, that, I mean, to say it had its roof cut off is not quite right because it wasn't an all-encompassing monocoque, that car. But yeah, it was an open-top version of that car with a uh, Porsche engine and gearbox. And, I mean, yeah, we're, this, this, is, uh, this is getting difficult now, isn't it? Whether you can include the successes uh, of, of WSC 95 in, in this. Ah, oh, man, this is... Well, well, the, reason I, the reason I was a little hesitant to start with is, you know, I, I spoke to um, Teo Fabi's engineer, Steve Farrell, earlier this year about the car. And he was full of praise for the car. And he said, actually, that if we didn't win the World Championship that year, we should have been sacked because we had the best car, probably the best driver lineup. And at that time, um, you know, the, the level of wind tunnel um, time it had, he said even by today's standards would be quite good. So I, I don't disagree at all with your points in saying that it was, it was a great car. But the 3.5 litre regulations pretty much died um, with the withdrawal of all the manufacturers. And in 1992, the, it was basically only Peugeot and Toyota that were left. So I think where... I just, I just don't know that it has the long-term impact on sports car racing and, and, and all the rest of it. It was brilliant in the year that it raced. And I suppose I'm maybe contradicting my point here in saying that the um, Mercedes 300 SLR should have gone through. But I think it, it suffers if, if we're putting it up against the 917 with the same issues as the, as the Mercedes in that it, it's, its time was kind of short-lived and, you know, the, the game gets moved on afterwards. But we, I'm happy to put it through to have that discussion and pitch it up against the 917. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to put it through, and I know this isn't one of the criteria we talked about, but it seems right in a debate about great sports cars, we should have a Jaguar going through. We've, we've got rid of the D-Type, and we haven't mentioned, you know, the, the XGL, the, all the V12s. The well, eights, absolutely. The Right. Well, I think I think we will. Uh, I take I take James's points into account. We will put the XJR fourteen through for now. Um, Gary and I have agreed on that one. But I, I, the next one, Gary, you're going to have to argue pretty hard. I think for the Ferrari three 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 SP and why that is uh, is our Ferrari on the list. Okay. Here I go. What's go. Not, what's not to like a Ferrari? <laughs> the first Ferrari prototype for more than uh, twenty years. Most of them were red. They sounded absolutely fantastic. It, it, it basically kept or helped, you know, it had a major role in keeping American sports car racing alive. It played a role in re-establishing prototype racing in Europe. Okay. And what it doesn't have is a great Le Mans result. But it could have done in 1996 when Scandia went with... Uh, a couple of cars. Eric van der Poelen was on uh, provisional pole. Is that Eric van der Poelen was on provisional pole uh, on after the Wednesday? Uh, the car was blindingly fast. That was actually the car entered under the Racing for Belgium banner, but it was it was run by the uh, Scandia team from America. Fortunately, they had a gearbox issue in the morning, uh, and then van der Poelen after that was like stunningly quick. Uh, 
could it have won Le Mans? Well, privateers generally don't win Le Mans. And I would argue that in 1996, Yerst weren't a privateer. Okay, they were the next year because Porsche didn't want them to go. Uh, yeah, so what counts against it is that it didn't win Le Mans. But I think it has, it has such an important role uh, in, um, in the way sports car racing developed. Uh, you know, it, it came over and it did the European prototype series, which was variously the sports racing world cup. And then eventually became the FIA sports car championship, won a lot of uh, races there, you know, and that, and that championship was very important. I think, you know, the history of Le Mans would have been different. You know, it was, it was a lot of those cars racing in the, uh, in that championship that sort of, you know, made BMW lean towards a prototype rather than doing a GT car. Of course, they'd come into GT, they'd come into back uh, to Le Mans with McLaren uh, in, uh, yeah, in nine, yeah, with the Bugatti cars and then Schnitzer yeah, in, uh, in 97. And then they did the first of the uh, Williams built uh, prototypes in 98. You know, and I think their decision to go, if there'd have been no Ferrari free, 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 there would have been no BMW uh, V12 LMR. What, what, what do you think, James? Well, I mean, I, I can't disagree with Gary in terms of the fever rating. I do think the 33 SP is a very cool car, although it should have a roof. Let's face it, all the best sports cars have roofs. I different, think it's beautiful. Different debate, but it is a fantastic yeah. car. But what, what do you think, James? Are we, uh, you know, are we, is it something we should be putting through? Great looking car. Um, and as Gary says, you know, it won three of the um, international sports racing series slash FIA sports car championship, giving luminaries such as Emmanuel Collard, uh, Vincenzo Sospiri, David Terrien and Christian Pescatori their day in the sun. It did have a Sebring win as well. Uh, sorry, it had two Sebring two wins Sebring. in yeah. 1995 in 95 and 1997. Uh, for me, I think the, the, the car is kind of summed up though by Daytona 1997, where Andy Evans, who had just bought um, the sort of series known as IMSA today, uh, went through a lot of different ownerships after the, the Bishop family that founded it sold up. And rather than putting some decent guns in the car to share with himself and Fernand Velez, he asked the Morgan father and son, to, who had been one of the unsuccessful bidders for the championship to share the car with him. Uh, and, you know, they crashed it and there were several problems. And the Dyson car that in the end had seven, seven different drivers drove that car and it finished with a dud engine. I was actually reading Gary's report in the magazine the other day. Uh, it makes for just a remarkable reading that seven different drivers could, 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 could stand together in, in victory lane. That's a lot of Rolexes for the uh, race sponsor <laughs> to hand out. They must have been well pissed. Must they must have, have been steaming. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just shows to me at any rate that its story is defined by the fact that it wasn't a full factory Ferrari effort. It was a car that was commissioned for use by customers. And while in the case of the 956-962, one of the great things in its favour is the amount of success that, that customers had with the car. The cornerstone of it was the fact that it was being raced at the same time by the factory and the factory was developing um, 
developing the car alongside it. You know, the, the PDK gearbox and the new um, uh, engine management systems and so on. So I think, you know, the Ferrari 3.3 SP, um, you know, a great car in, it, in its period, but um, I don't think it's, its achievements are lofty enough to warrant going up against something that Autosport has put the question out there on its cover as saying, is this the best sports car of all time? I just don't think the Ferrari makes that question. I think the, the killer point for me is that all these other cars that we're talking about, you know, sports car racing is, is very cyclical. It's very up and down. There have been some absolutely fantastic eras and some not so good ones for various reasons, manufacturers pull out, et cetera. And pretty much all the other cars that we're talking about are, are great cars from the eras where it's been mega. And I totally take Gary's point that the 323 almost helps bridge a gap between two great eras. Absolutely. Um, but in of itself was part of one of its weaker periods. Um, so I think, you know, when it came up against proper opposition in Europe, it was found a bit wanting. Would that have been different if it had been a works programme? Uh, quite possibly, but sort of shame on Ferrari for not being a works programme and they should blooming well come back and put that right at Le Mans uh, any time very soon, please. Well, I hope they do, but uh, I'm, I'm, I've been holding my breath on this one f- f- for uh, however many years and, uh, yeah, well, who knows? Luca Badoa's entire reputation could be completely different, couldn't it, if, uh, if Ferrari had entered that as a, cus- as a factory car? <laughs> I'm going, to, I'm going to say that Luca Badoa would not have made a good endurance driver. I saw him do uh, some FIA GTs in a GBF Lotus, uh, and I'm going to say that uh, I never had him down as a future Le Mans winner. <laughs> that's, I think that's probably, uh, probably fair. Um, right, we're gonna, we, are, we are going to move on, and I, but we're going to do I, that. I, I know I've lost, but there you go. I'm sorry, Gary, but we're, I'm very pleased that we've talked about it. I think it's so we're, we're moving from one car in which Delara had a major hand into another car in which uh, Delara had a hand, the uh, Audi R8. Well, I wondered whether we could talk about the R8 and the R10. I'm going to be honest now and put my cards on the table and say, None of the Audi era really did it for me. I was very pleased when Porsche came back and sorted them out almost instantly. That's not to disrespect the job that they did. Incredible team, incredible cars, but they didn't. none of them really did it for me on the fever rating. The Audi R8, you have to say, in terms of its numbers, uh, you know, at Le Mans and around the world, incredible. And the R10, of course, has the, the, the groundbreaking winning Le Mans as a diesel. So which one of those two should we, if, if either, should we be putting through to the final? The R10, okay, it scored a hat-trick. Uh, it was unbeaten when it was run in the hands of the factory. But I'm going to say its claim to greatness uh, rests on two points. The first is that it, was the, it marked the start of what I call the high-tech era. You know, the turbo diesels came with it in 06, Peugeot followed in 07, and that led in to the uh, hybrid era that, you know, is now coming to uh, a finish this year. Um, that's, that's, that's why it's so important. The first reason it's so important. The second reason it's so important is that it won the greatest ever Le Mans 2008. Mm-hmm. Tom Christensen, Alan McNish, and Dindo Capello. Uh, we, we say, I, I, I sort of wrote down the word giant killers here, and that's sort of strange word, uh, 
to use uh, in connection with Audi, isn't it? But, you know, underdogs is probably the better, better word. And um, we didn't expect them to win. You know, Peugeot clearly had a performance va- advantage. It was multiple. I think it was four, and a, four seconds at the test day. I think five seconds uh, in, in qualifying. Uh, you know, no, uh, many people weren't giving um, Audi a chance. I did in the Le Mans supplement. I said there was only one. I said there was one car that could challenge Peugeot. And I said it was the uh, Christensen, McNish, uh, Capello, uh, Audi. I turned out to be being correct, but along the way, I did upset every other driver in the Audi camp, especially uh, Emanuele Piro, who got a bit who got a bit arsy with me. I would say uh, on on uh, on Friday. But 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 you were. I mean, you were right. That was my first in the morning reporting uh, for Autosport, and uh, I mean Peugeot. It was Peugeot versus that one car, really. Absolutely, yeah. And for me. Re- I, I would be hard pressed to argue against your point of it being sort of certainly one of the great Le Mans victories, really, because it was a combination of a very well-oiled team uh, and drivers. I thought Christensen and McNish in particular were fantastic, weren't they? Um, all coming together to sort of overcome the odds. Yeah. Really. So, uh, I, I, it's a very strong case for the R10, James. Would you want to put the R8 up against it, or are you going down the R? One of these cars has got to go through. There's got to be an Audi in the final, I think. Um, I'd have to agree with Gary, to be honest. I think, of course, it also has a great Petit Le Mans win in 2008 um, in its favour, which is made, you know, a, an even better story by the fact that Alan McNish um, had crashed on his way to the to the grid, um, given themselves effectively a two-minute disadvantage before the race had even started. But I think it's it's that combination, isn't it, of the groundbreaking technology um, of the R10. I, I interviewed Ulrich Boretsky, the engine guru, at Audi Sport a couple of years ago. And he, he told me that when they embarked on that project, there was nobody at Audi Sport that actually knew how to make a diesel engine. Um, just amazing. And, and why would there never, be? Because there had never been a racing diesel engine before. Every other uh, sort of diesel racing project, if you go back to the 50s or you go back to... BMW doing the Nürburgring 24 hours with a, a sort of a diesel engine super tourer. You know, they, they were road car engines. Audi built the first race diesel engine, you know, so it was, it was a trip into the dark. And we mentioned it earlier when Audi first arrived in 1999 with the Audi R8R and the Audi R8C that they didn't get things right immediately. And it kind of took until there was the manufacturer exodus effectively at the end of 1999, before uh, Audi really becomes a force. Um, it Really, it only has BMW in 2000 and a challenge from Panos with its weird front-engine roadster um, that actually hold a, a candle to it. And then um, in 2005, when the Audi R8 is running 50 kilos heavier than the Pescarolo, um, it, it's still, and, and it's not a, a factory run entry either by then it's a run by the champion racing team from america um it, it's still able to beat it and, and effectively the only real car that it loses to is the um then vw group had thrown its weight behind the bentley car that um was run by the factory US team in 2003 uh, and and that kind of breaks Audi's unbroken record at, at le mans up to that point with, with the r8 
it has an unbeaten record in the American Le Mans series, um, an unbeaten record at Sebring. Um, but, you know, the R10, as Gary said, it, it takes that leap into the dark and it's still successful against greater opposition. The only thing that you could say against it is it loses Sebring in 2008 to the LMP2 um, Penske run Porsche. But then, um, you know, Peugeot didn't win that one either. So uh, I think the the R10 is the car that has to go through really just because of the stronger opposition um, and the the real technical step forward that it takes in starting the turbo war, uh, starting the diesel wars. I, I love the R8 and I love the fact that it had this uh, amazing longevity that it sort of, you know, it, it went on longer than Audi could have foreseen, you know, way beyond the end of the, the factory programme. Uh, but in sport, not just motor racing, um, rivalries make for legends, don't they? Why, why do we talk? We talk about Prost because of... Uh, Senna and Prost, Prost and Piquet, Prost and Mansell. You know, will we talk about, do we talk about Schumacher in the same breath? We don't because he didn't have those great rivalries. Uh, I think that's what's missing from the story of the R8, particularly at Le Mans. Not not so much um, in America uh, because it did have the panels and panels were were consistently uh, giving them uh, a run for for their money, but of course the the R10 had Peugeot, and the Audi Peugeot rivalry for me was uh, yeah was 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 stunning. And of course we all think that uh, it was Audi coming out on top. But if you do the stats, you know um, Peugeot won the majority of the races that they went head to head in over the course. You know from 07 through to 011, they just only won the big one once. You know, I'm sure we would perceive that program entirely differently if they, if if the the scores had been uh, a bit more level. You know, had they have had they have won uh, one more, then I, I think you know the the Peugeot 908 uh, program would 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 get a better write up in the history books whenever they come to be written. That's, I think that's a fair point. Um, but your, I think the point about rivalries is an excellent one because that also brings us on to the final, the final car on the list because I think there was, we've sort of just had a golden era of, of sports car racing and so I think some people might have missed it with uh, Porsche, Audi and Toyota going at it. Um, they were fun, phenomenal cars, some phenomenal racing and in the end, Porsche really stamped its authority back on the sport after being out for so long with the 919 hybrid. One of the greatest eras of sports car racing uh, for me uh, with the best ever racing, you know, has there ever been such good racing at the front of the field in the world championship? Okay, we didn't have a world championship between 92 and 2012, but, you know, at the front of Le Mans, um, you know, all over the place. And, then, you know, those three just went at it. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it was a three-way fight. Sometimes it was a two-way fight. Uh, but it was just it was just phenomenal. And I hope that in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, that people will look back on it and realise how good it was, you know. And, okay, yeah, the Porsche came out on front and it came out on top. And it, uh, it 
it sort of reinforced the legend, didn't it? It, it did its job. Porsche had been out since 98, away from the top class. They come back, had one year sort of sussing it out. They went away, redesigned the car, came back with version two, and in 15, okay, they, you know, they dominated the championship really, especially after, after, after Le Mans. Um, and they did, they did their job is, you know, they sort of, I call, I call the years that they were out the interregnum because Porsche are the king of Le Mans and they came back and they sort of, it did the job. And, you know, I, when Porsche withdrew, I mean, as, as shocked and uh, uh, upset as I was, you know, that car did the job it was uh, conceived to do. It, 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 it reinforced the legend, didn't it? Also, when looking at that, I mean, I'm a huge sports car fan, and I really like it when a sports car can get close to or give current Formula One cars something to think about, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like the 917 the XGR14. And actually, the, that generation of, of cars, uh, of sports cars, was, was getting towards that, that potential, which Porsche then went out and spent money on to actually demonstrate with, the, with their sort of celebration 919 hybrid Evo which briefly went out and smashed uh, the Formula 1 lap record at Spa. They took it to the Nürburgring and set a ludicrous time there. Uh, and that, to me, is what sort of outrageous sports cars should all be about. I don't know whether we should include that in part of this debate, really, because it was... I, different- think, I think you've got to exclude it. And, and there's an argument that you should exclude the uh, Can-Am successes for, uh, for Porsche because, uh, because that's, it's just that sort of almost no rules racing or, you know, very liberal rules racing. It, 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 it just creates stupidity and it doesn't create good <laughs> racing. And, you know, think of the, the debate that's been going on in Formula One for however many years and in sports cars, cutting costs, making for better racing. Can you imagine if you sort of had a sort of like a, a Can-Am rule book uh, or something even approaching it in, in WEC now or in Formula One, there would be one team you know running away into the distance wouldn't there it would be extortionally expensive incredibly dangerous and the racing would be hopeless i completely agree but that's one of the reasons why i, I like the 917 so much and i think for me it's a watershed moment where motorsport starts having to deal with technology being ahead of everything else we have to rein in power we have to modify tracks we have to stop this from because it got to the point where people became too good at making racing cars in terms of just sheer performance and pretty much ever since the 70s and into the 80s, been on a trajectory of ever more restrictive regulations. Yes. Cars outgrowing the race circuits and outgrowing their own racing ability. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. Okay, well, we'll ignore the evolution car from that then. So, James, do you think that the 919 hybrid should go through to our to our final as the, as the best car of the latest great sports car era? I do, yes. I think, I mean... W- Regardless of whether we're including the Evo version or not, it's still, you'd say, arguably, the ultimate LMP1 car because it beat Toyota. Um, and, you know, there's an argument to say that if Porsche was still campaigning, you know, that the, the current Toyota hasn't been developed per se since, since Porsche pulled out because there's been rule freezes in place. And the other reason, it hasn't really needed to. What's the point? Yeah. Um, you, you know, okay, in 2016, Toyota had 
had uh, had Porsche beat until it conked out with one lap to go. And in 2017, um, you know, after all the Toyotas had dropped out, Porsche still nearly lost the race to an LMP2 car. But you'd say that, you know, in the times when Audi was still part of it uh, in 2015 and, and 16, it had the measure of the Audi as well. And the Audi, of course, had the you know the, the benefit of all these years of sports car racing experience from Team Yurts that was running the program. And as Gary kind of alluded earlier, you know, Porsche came in in 2014, didn't get it exactly right first time, but came back the second year with a, a revamped program, and it was the it was the car to beat, and it won at Le Mans with uh, lest I remind Kevin Turner with Nick Tandy. Uh, Hulkenberg and Earl Bamber, a third car that kind of just rocked up. And Gary talked about, you know, the underdog earlier. And you could say it wasn't really an underdog because they had, a, you know, they had parity of equipment. But they'd only done the one race beforehand. They'd done the Spa race where I think Tandy had tangled with... Uh, Kevin Estra, yes. <laughs> his future teammate, Kevin Estra, in the, uh, who was making then his debut in the Porsche factory team, um, at the, the S's um, so they hadn't really even had a, a, the benefit of a full race <coughs> running un, under them so the fact that they were able to get in that car and get onto the limit with it so quickly I, I think is, is actually a testament to, to the car and, and to the team running it of you know that they were able to give them a, a winning platform and that would have been only Hulkenberg's second ever um, sports car race start because I, I don't believe it, it would have done anything else on the, on no. the way up the ladder so but um, let's not forget let's not forget Tom Christensen won Le Mans at his first attempt having done very little sports cars having never sat in the car until he arrived at Le Mans having uh, only done a handful of laps um, during uh, practice because he had to go and test his Formula 3000 car you know class shows doesn't it you know and you know Hulkenberg's a, a bloody good driver uh, and, and, you know, bloody good drivers should be able to get in and get on top of Le Mans straight away. Yeah, and, and keep a space in uh, in Formula One when they're still good enough, but that's perhaps a, a well, different... The only we... thing I would say that counts against the 919, because it did produce um, some amazing racing, it was part of a great era, it, it wasn't involved in an amazing Le Mans. You could say the, the, the final victory in 17, the sort of catch-up, but it, it wasn't involved in a sort of 2008-style uh, uh, victory or a 2011-style uh, victory when sort of Lotterer uh, just pipped the, uh, the Peugeot by just a handful, you know, a dozen seconds or whatever. So it didn't, there wasn't one of those. I think I can see what you mean, but I think that the 2016 finish to Le Mans is about the most dramatic sport. Well, event. yes, yeah, but it, it lucked in, didn't it? You know, it didn't, it didn't, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I was trying to think of a sporting analogy there. Yeah. Like, like a <laughs> that, was the, that was the kind of the, the tortoise of the, of the Porsche contingent, wasn't it? I mean, it, it won that race and Porsche then found itself in the awkward situation where, you know, that car had such a massive advantage in the championship, but it was the slower of the Porsches in the rest of the year that it had to continually enact team orders to make sure that the, the slower car effectively finished ahead. But, um, and then uh, got rid of uh, two of its world champions after the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think the, the 919 hybrid 
definitely does deserve to go through into that that final pantheon. Got to be, it's got to be in the pot, hasn't it? Right, well, let's look coming a quite Porsche heavy contingent. Isn't well, it? I think that's that's fair enough. Inevitable, really. I think, is what it is, and, and right as well because. And we the, haven't even discussed my favourite, the Porsche nine thirty six. Well, oh. I was just going to give you another, oh. Gary. So the, no. the final, seven, the final seven we've got: the Mercedes Benz three hundred SLR, the Ford GT fourteen, its various forms, Porsche nine one seven, the nine five six nine sixteen, the Jaguar SGR fourteen the Audi R10 and the Porsche 919 hybrid. Probably worth saying at this point, we're not looking at some of the successful small fry cars or lower classes, GT classes. You could go on forever and a day talking about some of the great GT cars and perhaps that's a, that's a podcast for another day that we could, we could do. So this is sort of outright front-running cars. But before we debate those seven, I was going to ask, are there any other cars that we'd like to, to mention or throw into the pot? And obviously, Gary's mentioned, I think, probably one that, that does certainly deserve to be talked about, which is the, the Porsche 936, which bridges the gap effectively between the 917 well, that, and that, that's its misfortune, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it's sort of sandwiched between two of the greatest sports cars ever that happen to be Porsches. Uh, and so everyone, everyone forgets about it. But just look at its record at Le Mans, you know. It, it, it won, uh, so it won in, uh, yeah, 76, 77... And 81, you know. It, it did let the 935 win a Le Mans, though, which has surely got to count against <laughs> Well, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it was, you know, um, I think it was injector belt failure, wasn't it, or whatever. So, And they were literally museum pieces by then as well, weren't they? They were, you know, that, the, the best thing about the 936 story is that they kept rolling the car out of the museum. And, it, and well, it didn't win in 79, but it did in 81. You know, so it's just, a, yeah. But anyway, we can't have too many Porsches and, yeah, we can't discuss every car. But it is a particular favourite of mine. That's if all right. we were to make a footballing analogy there, it would be the, uh, the Roberto Firmino of the Liverpool front three. But uh, that's just me showing off my football allegiance there. Uh, on the basis that my knowledge of 1950 sports cars is much better than football that happened five minutes ago, I'm going to have to disagree with you. Uh, uh, on that, James. But are there any sports cars that you would like to give an honourable mention to or throw in that, that we've perhaps missed and not, not talked about? I'm sure that there will be some people in the office who are expecting me to say that the, the Emil Frey Jaguar self-built <laughs> GT3 car, but I'm not going to give them that satisfaction and move on to the final. Is it a straight shootout between the 960 and the 917 or are there any, other, any of the others that you're going to yes. throw in? Yes is the simple answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'll throw my hat in and say I think it should be the nine six two just to be controversial. Um, the reasons that were outlined earlier, I think Gary kind of covered off every point really, from the longevity element to um, the just the sheer numbers of, of successes it had. In nineteen eighty three, it had eight. It had eight of the top nine cars uh, in the in the order at Le Mans. Um, just a, a truly, a true classic that was so important for the history of sports car racing. And when you think about Group C, that's the car that you think of, unless you're a, you know, a dyed-in-the-world Tom Walkinshaw Jaguar fan. I think to most people, the image that's conjured up is one of a, you know, a, a Rothmans 962 or, or you know, a Shell, a Shell 962 if, uh, if you're of that disposition but for me yeah. it's a human uh, 956 but there you go 
Oh, the ah. the Newman 956, now in new ownership, I'm told. Or the low and brown car driven by Al Holbert. Well, indeed, yeah. There we go. Yeah, that looks cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think it's right that I go next so that Gary has the deciding vote. It seems appropriate that, uh, that that Gary, who's attended far more 24-hour races than James or I... So you might uh, not... You, you don't even need to speak, uh, Kevin, because you're going to vote for the 917 and I, I, I'm going to trump no, you. I, I will, but I will make. I will not go down without a without a fight. I would say that you wouldn't have had the nine five six, the nine six two, that nine one seven. It started the. It started Porsche's uh, time at Le Mans. I think it had far-reaching uh, consequences, not just for Porsche, but for sports car racing and cars in general, with the development of the turbos in Can-Am, which I do think should be counted. Um, to me, it's a much cooler looking car than the nine six two as well. Even though I think the nine six two is a very cool car. Um, and for me, the 962 slightly lost its uh, appeal with just so many cars on the grid. I realise that Gary's argument that it was the backbone of sports car racing is entirely valid. But for me, it's not quite special enough because of that. And when Jaguar and Sauber got into their stride, they did see it off. Um, whereas the 917 had to be banned twice and nobody ever saw it off, really. So my vote is for the 917. James is for the 962. So Gary will get the deciding vote. Just so, just so we can say, we are talking about the 956 stroke 962 because, you know, basically the 962 is a long wheelbase version of the 956 that uh, was introduced because of um, uh, regulation changes in Europe, but also it, obviously it went into IMSA where uh, the driver's uh, feet had to be behind the uh, front axle line. Um, sorry, just to, that's just me being uh, an anorak there, just to, to clarify that we're talking about uh, two cars. I, you know, it has to be the 956, 962 for me for all the reasons uh, I outlined before. It's, it's, it's just its importance in history uh, beyond what's written down in the, the record book. It's just, it's just, it just so important in in sports car racing on on both sides uh, of the pond which is obviously where it outs outscores uh, the 917 okay there wasn't really much of a sports car scene uh, in America uh, at that point but you know it it was the bedrock of two series you know a world championship and uh, a major continental championship and it and it won so many races um, and it kept a lot of people in jobs, you know, running them, building them, rebuilding engines, whatever, you know. So for me, it has to be the 956, 962. I think if you also look at, if your argument is that endurance racing is a, a top level of the sport that the, the good amateur or the wealthy, you know, the privateer can actually aspire to do, you know, you can aspire to do Le Mans, you can't aspire to do Formula One in that context anymore. The, the 956, 962 was a usable racing car for a yeah. private team, whereas the 917 was a car where, you know, Vic Elfer said there were probably only three or four drivers in the world that could actually get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. So my vote will stay with the uh, 917, but I will, uh, will reluctantly concede that uh, the uh, all sports greatest sports car racer of all time is the Porsche 956, 962. And I'm sure there are an awful lot of people that would agree with that as well. Um, let us know what you think um, on, on our social media channels. 
um, or email us at allsport at allsport.com. Let us, let us know what you think. Um, but it's the 956-966 that's going to go through to the, to the grand finale at the end of the series. Um, anything else you'd like to end, chaps, before, uh, before we finish? I hope you keep me in a job, Kev. It's going to have to come up in your appraisal, James. I, you know, I don't know what I've been doing all this time. But uh, anyway, yes. No. Um, well, I'd uh, just like to thank you, the listeners, uh, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, or as much as I was until the end there, but I think I'll get over it. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Gary Watkins and James Newbold very much for, uh, for joining us. And uh, please tune in next time uh, when we debate the next of our All Sports 70 Great Cast podcast. Thank you very much. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.